Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be talking to Carlo Rovelli. Carlo is a theoretical physicist and an author whose books like Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, Reality is Not What It Seems and The Order of Time have led to some people calling him the poet of physics. His new book Helgoland tells the story of quantum physics beginning with Heisenberg's trip to the remote island of Helgoland. This podcast is sponsored by Oxford Instruments Nanoscience. The company provides market-leading cryogenic systems that enable quantum technologies, new materials and device development in the physical sciences. Ultra-cold temperatures are essential to achieve the low-noise environment necessary for the operation of both superconducting and spin qubits, and understanding materials at the quantum level. While driving for increased cooling and wiring capacity, they've designed the system with vibration levels in mind, designing the frame from the ground up to reduce the need for active vibration damping. Oxford Instruments have released the Proteox system, a new platform for quantum computing scale-up. Oxford Instruments will be playing a key role in providing the Proteox system for the first commercial quantum computer in the UK. Please visit nanoscience.oxinst.com for more information. The week beginning the 14th of June this year is Quantum Week and there'll be a series of free webinars on the Physics World website as well as a special collection of quantum articles. The quantum world is a decidedly odd one. Schrodinger's cat, quantum entanglement or spooky action at a distance and has famously confused and confounded some of the best physics minds there are. The story of quantum physics, as told by Carlo Rovelli, begins on a remote island in the North Sea, some way off the coast of Germany. I began by asking Carlo why he'd written the book and why he'd called it Helgoland. <laughs> the, uh, uh, so what made me write it is that uh, quantum mechanics, uh, it's probably the most weird, but also the most interesting aspect of modern science, in my opinion, is the most... Uh, um, the one that has the largest impact on our worldview. And uh, it's a difficult problem with which I've been struggling all my life. Uh, I've had written a few things in a, sort of popular books before, uh, but I always hesitated uh, uh, fully addressing the problem because it was, it, it was hard. After writing The Audio of Time, which was uh, an atopic time, which is fascinating, but in a sense, everything is clear once you digest it. I thought of not writing anything anymore. But then in the moment in which I, I decided to write something, it was pretty obvious to me that this is the thing you want to write about physics, because that's where physics becomes uh, extraordinary, quantum theory, more than anything else, more than, you know, Big Bang, extra universes or whatever. The, 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 the challenge that quantum physics presents to our view of reality are such that uh, uh, that that set the beauty of science for me. So that was a that was a reason. And then at the beginning, I was uh, the title, the working title of the book was Relations, because the uh, the view 
I have about quantum theory is that it tells us how important is relations in, in physics. But uh, then in writing, I, I, I focused more and more on Heisenberg uh, and on this particular moment when uh, quantum mechanics was conceived. And that was on Helgoland. Mm-hmm. And I started reading and the, the, the accounts that uh, Werner Heisenberg uh, gave uh, of his discovery, essentially, of, of quantum theory on the island of Helgoland. And I got this image of this young kid, you know, 23 years old, immer- totally immersed in a problem, going to this uh, isolated, uh, wild uh, island in the middle of the Northern Sea because he had a high fever, essentially. That was the main reason. <laughs> so mm-hmm. he, he needed to be in a, pa- in a place where, where there are no pollens. And uh, Helgoland is an island without vegetation, with very little vegetation. So he's there all alone. Uh, totally focused on his uh, physics and his problem, how the atoms work. And he comes out with this incredible idea, which is the core of, uh, of quantum mechanics, of changing completely the way we understand reality. And, uh, and this is it, somehow. It's, it's the beginning of a, of a great story. So I thought that's perfect title of a book. Nobody's going to understand the title. Great. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, nobody knows what's Helgoland, right? I mean, it's just a yeah. few people know what's Helgoland. Yeah. Um, in addition, in the UK, it's Heligoland with, with an extra I, which is perhaps a more common British yeah. name way of calling it. Uh, so I thought that was, a, that was a good title, a good starting point for talking about quantum theory. Okay, but okay, yeah, so you 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 think that's a good idea, and then you speak to your editor, you speak to your publisher, and you say, "I'd like to write a book about quantum theory, and I'd like to call it Helgoland." And they say, "Yeah, that's fine, Carlo, go ahead." <laughs> no, obviously not. I mean, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, when I uh, the, the, the book part, yes, I mean, in fact, was uh, the other way around. They were pressuring me to write the book. But the title part is exactly as you said. And Emily, I, I, I said, okay, I found a great title, Helgoland. And the answer was, no no way. <laughs> You're not <laughs> going to sell a copy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people will think it's what? It's a travel story? It's a, it's a, it's completely, it's a novel? It's a, just it's a, it's completely comprehensible. Yeah. Um, so they thought, well, we could put a subtitle. I said, no, what a subtitle? Helgoland, period. <laughs> Nothing else. Brilliant. Um, <clears throat> the... The, the Italian and the UK edition came out with that. The American publishers uh, won and they got a subtitle, uh, Making Sense of the Quantum Revolution. Okay. That's a, okay. That's the US uh, subtitle. Uh, no, sure. But uh, look, uh, I, I, I won this one. I mean, for, for the order of time, I wanted a title in ancient Greek. And I lost uh, <laughs> because uh, because I wanted the order of time, but in, in in Greek because that's actually a citation of an old uh, philosopher. So I wanted it in the original, but they 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 didn't allow me. But I think Helgoland is a is a great idea because uh, also you know my books are not the usual popularization books, so I want to distinguish uh, the kind of science writing that I do from. Uh, from some other extremely good, by the way, uh, science writing, but it's a different kind, uh, which is more of the sort, okay, now I explain you quantum mechanics, the various aspects, uh, the various technical things, and uh, and uh, all the, the, the experiments and all the, all the side of this huge theory because it's applied for, for everything. Mm. Uh, 
I do something else. I try to cut away a lot. Uh, don't tell the full story and zoom to what I, I think is the key idea. So I just, that's my, my, my way of writing. Yeah. I saw the front cover and it arrived in my, on my doorstep and I was like, oh, that's intriguing. Um, I wonder how many copies he's going to sell. I'd be interested to know how many he's selling, not necessarily for the podcast. But um, I read the first part of the book, the preface, the first chapter, mm-hmm. and, I, and I was immediately hooked. Um, it, it's a lot about the people, right? It's about the people who are involved in it. And yeah. you're, you're telling the story through those people. If I walk out of my house and turn right and right again, I walk past the house with a blue plaque on it, it says, Paul Dirac lived here. Oh boy, <laughs> this yeah. is one of the main actors of this story. Yes, can you tell me about Paul Dirac? Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, yeah, it is a lot about people. Uh, not just because I like talking about people, uh, but because uh, I think that's the way you understand a theory, through the, the mental struggle of the people who got there, especially a theory which is not yet clear uh, completely on which there is not agreement on how to think about that. Um, somehow seeing exactly what was the steps that uh, led to us is uh, it's, uh, it's crucial. And Dirac is a marvelous story because uh, what happened is that Heisenberg, Heisenberg was 23 at the time. And Dirac also, I think it's his early 20s, 1923. So what happened is that, uh, it's a great story, Heisenberg uh, was having this, you know, uh, overworldly ideas. Things are not things, particles not particles. I mean, you don't, things don't exist when you don't look at them. It's just strangely absurd. And uh, and he had these calculations, uh, um, which is completely different than the calculations of standard physics. You don't have variables, simple variables evolving. You know, in physics, you have a position of a particle, the equation tells you how it moves. No, it was doing something completely different. And uh, Heisenberg actually went to England, to the UK, and, and gave a talk. Dirac was in the audience. Uh, we have, I mean, Dirac is... Uh, it talks about that, of course, this crucial moment in his life and in the history of science. And he didn't understand a world, obviously. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, in fact, Heisenberg was talking about something else, but at the end, he was mentioning his ideas about, you know, the, the to-be-born quantum mechanics and was completely incomprehensible. So Dirac thought, oh, that's, that's nonsense. Plus, he was tired and plus, and, you know, every physicist can identify perfectly to going to a conference and not understand what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> it's a standard life. Or sort of understanding, but you're tired and, well, who cares after all. So then um, Heisenberg goes back to Germany and uh, uh, writes actual, actually the paper, the 1925 paper that he got him the Nobel Prize, uh, which is a very hard paper. It's just strange, it's mysterious. You don't understand what's going on. And uh, and and, uh, and since a, a copy, at the time there was no internet, of course, uh, uh, to the UK, to Fowler, who, who was, was an advisor of Dirac, who doesn't understand a word about it, so gives it to Dirac. And says, "Well, uh, see if you have a, if you can make sense of that. Uh, and in fact, online one can find the actual printed copy with with the handwritten words to Dirac. Uh, <laughs> see if mm-hmm. uh, take a look at this and see if it makes any sense. And Dirac reads it um, and uh, reads the paper. And you know, Dirac is one probably one of the most, most brilliant uh, scientists, perhaps the most brilliant after Einstein." Um, and, and it is a marvelous uh, uh, 
person working with mathematics, and he doesn't understand a word. So this is nonsense. What is going on here? What the guy's doing is just making mm. no sense. And so put it on the side, uh, and two weeks later, Dirac is walking in the countryside alone, because that was one of his habits. Dirac is a little bit autistic and complicated, and it's relation with human beings and love to, mm. be, to, to be alone. So he's walking alone and thinks back, and uh, it just suddenly in his mind, something makes sense in what Heisenberg was doing. Uh, it remi- the kind of calculation he was doing reminds him of something he had studied in his classes, eh? So he rushes back, he goes to the to the library because, of course, he doesn't remember what the kind of things he studied one year earlier because that's, you know, again, every physicist can relate very well to that. Mm-hmm. You study something and the year later you don't remember anything about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so he goes back to the to the library. The library is closed because it's Saturday and Sunday he has to wake the weekend. <laughs> Since, you know, this is, a, this is the 1920s. Uh, he has to wait. So he goes home and has to wake. And finally, on Monday morning, he goes to the library, picks up the book, and he recognizes some of the calculation that Heisberg was doing with some of the calculation in mechanics, analytical quantum mechanics. And that identification is exactly the step that we every student now learns when he learns quantum mechanics. You take the, the structure in, in classical mechanics, which is cl- called uh, the, the Poisson bracket, a certain way of doing calculation, and you transform it into the calculation of quantum mechanics. So rapidly, uh, Dirac writes a theory, essentially, in a, in a, in, in a, in a short time, a, a extremely beautiful paper, says the, the fundamental equation of quantum mechanics, and that's it. And in the meanwhile, in Germany, Heisenberg with his uh, senior person, which is Max Born, and, and another young kid, uh, uh, the, the, the Jordan, uh, the, the theory they work together. They, they 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 also write the theory based on this first breakthrough by, by and and the two theories turn out to be the same. Uh, so mm. the quantum mechanics is born uh, out of this insight by Heisenberg was born independently in the mind of Dirac in the UK and in the collaboration of the three people in Göttingen. Eh? So they, they, you know, they exchange papers a few months later, and they have developed the same the same theory, which is the theory we use today, with which we do, you know, quantum computers, lasers, atomic bombs, uh, compu- uh, computer chips, and, uh, and 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 everything. So Dirac is a mm-hmm. is a very core um, of that alone, just on the few hints of um, that he got from uh, from this uh, draft by Heisenberg. But this is the thing, isn't it? Because it's it. Here's something that's been presented, and uh, in your words, possibly the second most important physicist after um, Einstein thinks it's doesn't understand it and thinks it's probably nonsense. Einstein thinks it's probably <laughs> nonsense, <laughs> and then here we are with it being used and being demonstrated. Um, it is so completely alien. You know, people who understand it to that degree rejected it first of all. Is it something that, that the general population need to understand? Well, you don't need anything, right? You can wake up in the morning, eat and go to sleep, and that's it. Uh, you don't need music, you don't need literature, you don't need thinking, you don't need loving, you don't need walking in the woods. There's nothing you really need. Uh, but would you do without loving and walking in the woods and listening to music and, <laughs> and knowledge? And this is knowledge. This is deep knowledge. So I think the situation is a little bit like like in the Renaissance. You know, Copernicus was sort of be- beginning to discover that the Earth is not the center of the universe. And and uh, it was not clear at the beginning. I mean, it took 100 years, 150 years before it was sort of 
and really understood and digested and 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 then it became a common knowledge uh, so you might be interested in this kind of thing so not and uh, it doesn't have a direct uh, quantum mechanics doesn't have a direct effect on our life except the huge technology that builds on it but um <clears throat> But it's not that you you know wake up in the morning <clears throat> and, and 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 you feel quantum split because you learn quantum mechanics. Uh, but it does change the our understanding of what things are. Uh, so in, it is a, it, it belongs in my in my opinion to the same kind of uh, uh, discoveries like you know discovering that this is not the center of the universe or discovering that humankind is just one of the other animals uh, with uh, common ancestors with all the rest of. Uh, of the biosphere. Um, so it, it, it modifies in, in death how, how we view reality. It just, and it is astonishing. It's telling us um, that you cannot really think that the reality is made by little objects uh, with properties uh, moving around, uh, which is what we learned at school in physics before quantum theory, right? They tell us, all right, so complexity of the world is little particles moving around and bouncing. No, I mean, reality is far, far, whatever you, whatever way you look at quantum mechanics, reality is far more complicated than this or, or different than this. So if there's quantum entanglement, there's, there's particle, you tell me what quantum entanglement is. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but (laughs) then explain why that is. If you could, that would be amazing. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I mean, I, 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 I struggle so much to 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 write that the entanglement particle in the book, because mm. entanglement is delicate and it's so easy to to sort of betray it to give a to give a, a cartoon version of it that doesn't work. It is a strange way in which uh, um, objects which are distant from one another. Uh, behave uh, in, in 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 correlated way, like if they were communicating. Like if you do something to one, it seems like the other one is instantly uh, knows about it. So like like uh, um, the, the the right way of thinking is that if you know if you know something about if you know everything you can say about one object, and far away you know everything you can say about that object, well you can still miss something about the two together. Namely, there are some properties of the two together which are not completely exhausted by everything you can say about one and everything you can say about the other. Uh, and this is strange because we think the world is made by... That's what Einstein had so much difficulty of digesting because Einstein would say, well, wait a minute. The world is local. Namely, what is here is here. We don't, you know, we don't communicate large distances unless you send a signal, which is to travel, to get there. It takes time. And more specifically, the world is... Um, uh, it's character. It's characterized by things with properties. That's how we always understood. Uh, so you, you you take something, you break it in pieces. Uh, you look at the full properties of each piece. That's you have the, the entire story. Well, that's not the case. Uh, you take something, you can break it in pieces. Uh, you know this, this and that, and you you describe each one as best as you can, and you're still missing something. There are some properties which are sort of one leg here and one leg there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's delicate because it's not true that uh, <clears throat> you can send messages instantaneously. It's not true, uh, and, and one shouldn't fall into naive expression like everything is connected. Uh, you know, they don't mean anything. 
it's just hard science. You, 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 <laughs> you, uh, there are properties of the world out there which are not exhausted by the individual properties of the components. That's entanglement. And, uh, and once again, it's telling us that reality is more complex than just a bunch of systems moving independently. Okay, brilliant. Um, thank you for um, humoring my silly question. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's, there's a, a story which many people know, thought experiment, which is Schrodinger's cat. One of the ways of, of, of capturing the core of, 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 of quantum physics is to, um, in fact, it's the original way of Heisenberg. Heisenberg, what, what, what is the idea he got on that island? Uh, he was studying the electrons, how the electrons move in uh, in an atom. And everybody was trying to write the equations of motion for the, the motion of the electron, the trajectory of the electron. And uh, Heisenberg dropped that. He said, no, 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 let's not study um, the, the position of the electron at every moment. Um, I know the position at one moment. Let's write some mathematics that give me the probability of finding it somewhere else. So it's like... Uh, one second later, I, I look where it is, uh, and it is somewhere else. And I just, uh, the mathematics just says, if it's here sometimes, one second later is the probability of being somewhere else. And in between, you don't know. In fact, in the mathematics, uh, uh, the electron in between is spread around in space. It's like open up in a wave, and then the wave collapses in a point. So when you're not looking, the, the, it's like the electron is not here or there. It's in both positions. In the mathematics, and if you and that Schrödinger had this nice idea of say, okay, to explain what we're doing, imagine we're doing this with a cat, that's a famous Schrödinger cat, and uh, we want to compute what happened to the cat later, knowing something about the cat now. Uh, we're using a mathematics in which, in between, the cat is in two different states or more different states. So, for instance, it can be Schrödinger said dead or alive. Uh, in my book, I use uh, uh, awake or asleep because I don't like dead cats. So um, <laughs> when, when you when you do the calculation in, in, in quantum mechanics, you're actually uh, sort of on the paper saying that uh, in between two observations, a cat can be in two different configurations, like asleep and also awake, um, which is very strange. I mean, what, what does it mean? I mean, that's if it's true for a cat, it's supposed also be, to be true for you. So what yeah. would it be if you are in two positions at the same time? Mm. How would you feel being two positions at the same time or being awake and also asleep at the same time? Or dead and also alive at the same time? That's uh, mm. that's very strange. Uh, and yet, that's the way we, um, that's the mathematics that we use uh, for describing things. So there's part of the science community who, in front of this strangeness, react by saying, well, let's take that seriously. So really, I mean, cats can be both. Uh, we can be both. Um, uh, we uh, Everything is described by this wave spreading in which we are many things at the same time. And why I don't perceive of being many things at the same time? Well, the answer is because we are one of them. <laughs> so there are many copies of me and this is, is one of me. And that's called the mm -hmm. many world interpretation of quantum mechanics. Because it's, it's, it's like there are many copies, many worlds where where in each one I'm seeing something different because something different is happening, and uh, uh, it's it's one way of capturing the core of the of the puzzle. I think, and and what I argue in my book is that multiplying uh, realities, multiplying worlds, 
thinking that they're copies of myself that see something different. Uh, it's a wrong way of thinking. I mean, it's consistent, it's coherent, but it's not going to help us. And it's not, it's not like that, that we think of nature uh, as it is. I think it's, it's easier to go exactly the other way around, like Heisenberg initially thought. Namely, um, the, the electron has a position in one moment because it's interacting with me. It's another position in another moment because it is interacting with me. That's it. In between, it's not interacting with anything, so it has no position because position is only sort of the way the electron interacts with something else. So um, instead of multiplying worlds, I think it's, it's easier to write quantum mechanics uh, in a more sparse way. There are only interactions and uh, not interactions with human beings that observe, interaction between any physical system with any other physical system. Mm-hmm. That was the title, Relations, uh, the original title of the book uh, I, I had. So properties of objects are not something in the object, uh, something that characterize the way objects interact with one another. And they only exist the, when there is an interaction. They only make sense when there is an interaction. That's the mm-hmm. core of the, of the idea of the book. Um, I, so when I was reading the book, I remember specifically I was sitting on a beach and I was reading when you start to talk about this, this, these relations and how things are only things in relation to other. Okay, they, exactly. They, um, exactly. And, and I have to say that I put the book down when you said uh, a stone. So I had the color of the sky. I was, I was down with that. That was fine. Um, there was various other things. And then you said a stone and I was like, or a rock. And I was like, no, a rock is just a rock, isn't it? I, I did read on. <laughs> I did read on and, and realize I was wrong. But I, I had a kind of um, slightly visceral reaction to it. That can't be. Look, uh, everybody who studies quantum theory one way or the other at some point says, no, 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 that can't be. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I opened, I opened the book by telling this story about me and Chaslav and the, the preface of the book, actually. It, it, it starts like that. It's me and Ch- Chaslav. Uh, Chaslav Bruckner is one of the uh, uh, main uh, theoreticians and uh, working quantum theory, super expert in quantum theory. And, and, and uh, in, the, in the beginning of the preface, uh, him and I are at a conference, uh, in fact, on an island, it's also that an island, uh, talking about an ideal experiment that he has discussed. And we talk and talk and talk, and then we get to the, to the, to the, to the, to the beach near the, uh, the ocean, and we sit down on the beach, and we are talking. And at some point, you know, there's long silence, and Chancellor say, Oh, come on, that cannot be. <laughs> it cannot be. I mean, can reality be so strange? It would it is possible, but the reality is so strange. That's the discovery of quantum theory. And, you know, it's 100 years that it works fantastically. Um, people have different ways of thinking about it, but each way of thinking about it requires a jump in, uh, it requires abandoning something that seems completely obvious uh, to us about the world. And your reaction to the rock, it's very uh, good. In fact, I mean, a rock is a quintessential thing, right? If you, think, if you think, what is an object, which is really an object, I mean, no no blah, blah, blah here, no intellectual, these really strange things. It's a stone, right? It's, it's a stone. I mean, you, can, well, you cannot say it's a stone because it's culturally determined or because it's subjective <laughs> or because it's interact with something else. It's just a stone, period. Yeah. Well, uh, no, it's not true. I mean, a stone can be in, a, in an entangled position. It can be like the cat in an entangled position with something else. Um, 
so it's uh, it's much less stony <laughs> than uh, <laughs> uh, uh, than the way it it uh, it looks like. Of course, the subtle quantum phenomena disappear as soon as you, I mean becomes invisible, becomes very very small as soon as you have big things. So a stone is big enough to hide its quantum nature, unless you make super, super, super detailed measurements. And then you actually see that the stone as well spreads like a wave and then we compact when interact with, uh, with something else. And, you know, stones are some funny things because uh, that's the magic of physics, right? If you, what physics tell you, the stone, it's a, if you look carefully, it's a collection of atoms in each of which there is a, there's a, there's a electron, which is a sort of cloud of around the nucleus, and the nucleus is a very complicated dynamics of uh, quantum field theory, gluons and quarks jumping around. Uh, so it's an incredibly complicated machine, a stone <laughs> inside. Mm. It's more complicated than a Ferrari. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and it's very... It's very burning and jumping, and uh, and, and there's a lot of empty stuff and uh, and, uh, and and firing things. Uh, so our intuition of the world, uh, it's super good for you know throwing stones one another, but uh, but it doesn't capture the, the the complexity of the world for, for sure. But so why do we know this is true? Why do why why do we tell me about the oh, experiments yeah. that demonstrate this? Yeah, in fact, uh, uh, there are a few things that we know it is tr- they are th- true, like quantum theory, mm. uh, in a very strong sense. Namely, um, science, uh, physics, I mean, the kind of sciences like physics, they, they work because you have theories that you can formulate mathematically, and uh, they give you uh, reliable predictions of what, what's going to happen. I mean, it started with astronomy in the past. Uh, in, fact, in fact, the far past. I mean, you can predict the future position of the of the planet uh, on the sky, and then with mechanics was a, was an explosion because you, you you can you can calculate things before before doing, and with electromagnetism uh, was even more. There's plenty of machines that were designed before before constructing, and quantum mechanics in this game is unbeatable. Uh, namely, uh, it's hundred years that every single prediction um, uh, done with quantum mechanics it's, has been confirmed. It's it's uh, it's a theory which has never never had any hint of a uh, going wrong. But it's more than that because we have other theories, you know, like general relativity or standard model of particle physics, that. Um, that uh, have never been wrong so far, but we have good reasons to believe that we already know where they're going to go wrong. Generativity, we we know it works spectacularly well, but we're pretty sure that uh, early in, in the early universe near the Big Bang, it doesn't work because it gives infinity. It doesn't work in the center of black holes, for instance. We know it's wrong. Uh, quantum mechanics is incredible because uh, not only it has always come out right, uh, but uh, we have no hint of where it, it should be wrong. And it has predicted uh, things that people didn't suspect uh, before, didn't demand, like the laser, for instance. The laser is in all sorts of our technology. There are little lasers all over. Um, that was built, it's a quantum phenomenon, and it's uh, it's a bit complicated as a quantum phenomenon, but it's a completely quantum phenomenon. And uh, um, so it was predicted by quantum theory. And... Uh, um, uh, you would build quantum computers now, there is a effort to build quantum computers, and they do behave the way the theory uh, predicts. Uh, in fact, uh, 
the great news are often, uh, there, there have been, we, we mentioned entanglement before. This can be checked. Entanglement is a phenomenon one can check, but taking two different things apart and measuring. And uh, uh, recently there have been spectacular experiments checking quantum entanglement, even in, you know when the things are so far apart that people said, well, do we really believe quantum theory here? Is this possible that this com- com- communication, there is a correlation of such huge distance? Yeah, I mean, quantum theory is always, it, it's always right. Plus, um, there are big pieces of nature that we didn't really understand. For instance, the, the, the table of the elements, right? We, the 90 element of the Mendeleev table, with the properties, this strange structure, two, um, eight. Uh, it was a, in chemistry is a given. You, you assume that this is the case, that there are these elements because they've measured why they have this property, why this structure. Well, in quantum theory, you just derive that. You compute it from, from the, the Schrodinger equation. You, you, you do a calculation, you have exactly this list, uh, and, and you can compute the properties. So the theory is incredibly successful. It's a... Uh, 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 we have to make, we cannot say, no, I don't believe it. <laughs> it's a, mm. uh, we have to accept that that's a better way of describing the world than our previous one. Mm. Okay. Uh, there's a there's a thing with the book as well, which is um, as as it goes on, more philosophy comes into it. Um, yeah. What, what's philosophy got to do with physics? Enormously. Um, in the, especially in the main passages, like uh, uh, the Copernican evolution or the discovery of the fields with electricity and ele- electromagnetic field or quantum mechanics of general relativity. Namely, f- physics is not just uh, you know, guessing equations and checking whether they're right. It wouldn't work that way. Physics is about having some um, concept for describing the world uh, and rearranging the concept in a different manner. Uh, thinking differently, having realizing that we had some deep prejudices and changing them, and that's what ph- where philosophy is strong. That's exactly where uh, philosophy helps because it, it it frees our mind, it allows us to uh, to think differently. And Heisenberg, when he invented quantum mechanics, was strongly under the influence of philosophy. Um, Einstein was strongly under the influence of philosophy. Uh, Newton, of course, was 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 so, and so many others. So, philosophy and science are different things, different methods, different. Uh, but there's a constant back and forth of uh, of the the tools used, uh, and there's a constant um, influence. And the the idea that science is only strictly, you know, um, prediction and verifiability or falsifiability, it's uh, I think it's uh, it's. Um, uh, is diminishing what really science is. Science is finding the right way of thinking the world. You see, Copernicus, what, what did he discover? He discovered that uh, the Earth is not the center of the universe, right? Can we prove that? Can we measure that? No, we can't. There's no way of measuring the Earth is the center of the universe or not. So if you have a too narrow vision of science, you say, oh, that's philosophy. It's not philosophy. It's, a, it's one of the key scientific questions that... Uh, allowed us to make this huge step and then to go to do, do classical mechanics, Newton, you know, Kepler, Galileo, and everybody else. So it, it is a question about how to think reality. If you rethink reality without insisting that you're at the center of the world, you understand it better. Suddenly, wow, you, you, everything got in, goes in place. So you always rearrange things, right? Before, let's go stay on Copernicus, before 
you arrange reality like the, you know there are um, mountains, trees, people, all thi- all earthy things, and there's a separate category which is the sun, the moon, Venus, and Mars. And then you say, no, 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 that's not the right categories. The right categories are the sun is one thing, <laughs> the earth, the Venus, and Mars are other things, which are all on top of it. And then the moon is still a different thing because it goes around the earth, so it's not a planet. It's a... So you completely rearrange things, and uh, that's not something you measure, right? That's just the way you think about things. But that works. So that's what science is often, um, is rethinking, this conceptual aspect uh, of it. And I think that uh, modern science, modern physics, sometimes um, with its anti-philosophical attitude that has taken as, after the Second World War, it was not like that before at all, uh, it risks to become a little bit superficial because it doesn't uh, try to think uh, in, a, in a strong sense, in the way Einstein was thinking, or Heisenberg thinking, or Dirac was thinking. Dirac was, in his way, a deeply philosophical thinker as well. Are you worried that people might take some of these things, and do take some of these things the wrong way, and think that this strange world of, of quantum, and if you start talking about philosophy with the strange world of quantum, then it might back up these odd, you know, uses of the word <laughs> quantum that we get. Yes, I worry about that. In fact, uh, I see the I see the, the danger of that, which is which is absolutely visible in our society. The quantum is all over in our society, hmm. and in a completely nonsensical way, a silly way, and a little bit more than silly, I mean, even dangerous ways. Because when you try to justify, you know. Uh, connections that are not there, but calling them quantum or use, you know, quantum leaps, quantum this, quantum that. Uh, it's uh, it's not intellectually good at all. It's intellectually bad. Um, and uh, and the worst of that for me is quantum medicine. There's a lot of uh, actual fraud out there uh, under the name of quantum medicine, in which there are things you can buy, very costly, very expensive, because, you know, you put a quantum thing on your skin, it's supposed to do this and that, and it's just, you know, uh, robbing money from naive people. So, so yes. But, you know, uh, it's, we, have to take, we have to accept the risk. It's not, we cannot hide <laughs> the complexity because, uh, because it can be misunderstood. Yeah. Yeah. No. Okay. I the, the, Yes. I, I take that. Do you have any tips for um, science communicators of complex science? How you how, how should they go about it? Let me give you an example. I was uh, not long ago. I was watching on on uh, online, and I saw um, Brian Green explaining on TV how LIGO worked for the mm. for the detection of gravitational waves uh, by bringing on TV two little laser. Uh, uh, Having us interference and, and and project the interference on the on the screen, and then he from a distance shouting "Oh!" and the noise, which are the waves uh, making the interference uh, move, and that's totally brilliant. I mean, this is ten yeah. pages of physics, uh, just uh, with a completely simple example, which. That's the point. Captures exactly what LIGO does, exactly mm. what what LIGO is doing. So I think the if I had to give an an advice, or at least the advice I would like to 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 um, is take away, take away. Don't add uh, details. I mean, a good uh, good popularization is not when there is more things said. 
is when uh, there are less things said. Because if one says less thing, one has the luxury of not cheating. You see, the problem of popularization is that you always have to cheat a little bit because uh, you say, how, how can I explain that? That's complicated. It would take a full lecture. I don't have time for a full lecture. So let me just simplify a little bit. And, mm. and, and that's what makes popularization bad. So I think what popularization is bad when you read and say, okay, I, I believe you, but why should I? It doesn't really connect. doesn't really make sense. So I think it's more important to, to explain well the, the 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 what one says rather than saying more things do you watch science fiction at all is there any science fiction that you've read or seen that sort of gets quantum right there's a lot of quantum in in, in science fiction and usually it's not got right at all uh, there's some some which are better uh, sometimes it's just taking some aspect of it and uh, or some controversial aspect of it and make stories about that now this is a side which I dislike because I tend to to say, "Oh, come on! I mean, why do you, why why do you fantasize?" But also, you know, uh, uh, fiction is fiction, art is art. You, you can do what you want. It's not uh, you don't have to be uh, you don't have to be faithful. And I don't think a scientist should say, "Oh no, come on! That's not true. That's not really what's uh, what happened in reality." It's beautiful to see when uh, the actual. Uh, Phenomena which we know are possible are, are, are actually used uh, in a in a realistic way. But if they are used in a non-realistic way, that's okay, provided that you know we know is Hollywood is not is not science. When Newton did Newton, not long after uh, Milton wrote Paradise Lost, Paradise Lost, which is full of Newtonian. Uh, sense of the immensity of space and flying between uh, you know the it's great it's a great way in which science influences in great literature uh even if it's not really really precise <laughs> the way uh, scientifically <laughs> uh, the way you know the devil flies around among worlds and galaxies so um so i've nothing against uh, in fact art being inspired by science sometimes art is inspired by science and in a sense it captures some 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 freshness and openness of science, even if it's not faithful to the to the to, to what science is saying. I I do uh, read some science fiction. I'm not particularly uh, taken by 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 watching science fiction. Um, uh, there's one science fiction author that I love, which is uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, the one of the Mars trilogy and, and, and other uh, great novels, which I think it's, uh, 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 it's deep, it's vast, it's intelligent, it's knowledgeable, and it's full of, uh, uh, of ideas, uh, uh, many of which come from science, uh, but all think together, even if it is uh, set in the past or in uh, fictional worlds, uh, I think what I like most of it, it's the politics rather than the science. Okay, you're still interested in politics then. I belong to that generation that thinks that everything is politics and uh, and uh, politics in the in the noble sense. I mean, we live together and we have to to arrange things together. Even science has a, always a political size without without denying its uh, its its effectiveness, its, objecti- its objectivity, um, its independence, its needed independence from uh, from day to day politics. Uh, uh, but uh, politics is the organization of the society of living together. Science is the best organization of our thinking.
It's not me. It's Alexander Bogdanov. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't want to appropriate such a beautiful phrase. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I enjoyed the storytelling aspect of Helgoland. And there's no doubt, as Carlo Rovelli himself says, that he has a different way of doing science writing. There is, as has just been said, a political aspect to everything. I imagine it's eminently possible to pick other parts or pick other characters in the history of quantum physics. But by concentrating on these early days, there are some inherent problems. Every one of them is a white man. And it feels, I think correctly, uncomfortable today for me, a white man, to be talking to another white man about a lot of other white men. And those of you who have read the book are familiar with some of the more disquieting, to say the least, aspects of Schrodinger's private life will know that there are some uncomfortable truths. But I feel that's a topic for another time, and I wanted to concentrate on the science for this episode of the podcast. Another part of the book that I particularly enjoyed is the way that Carlo explains quantum mechanics, quantum physics, from his point of view. And don't forget to visit physicsworld.com, where you can find lots more content on quantum physics, including in our sister podcast, the Physics World Weekly Podcast. That's all for this episode, and a special thank you to Oxford Instruments Nanoscience for their generous support. To learn more about their low-temperature systems for quantum computing applications, please visit nanoscience.oxinst.com. And we'll be back next month when we'll be looking at some fascinating missions to asteroids. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.